From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human-Centered. How did the field of computer security emerge, and over time, evolve a niche of professionals who protect systems from cyber attacks? What are the implications given that these experts must demonstrate their skill by paradoxically revealing vulnerabilities and insecurities? In this episode of Human Centered, a conversation with 2022-23 CASBIS fellow Rebecca Slayton. Slayton is an associate professor of science and technology studies at Cornell University. Her research examines the relationships between risk, governance, and expertise with a focus on international security and cooperation since World War II. Her first book, Arguments That Count, shows how the rise of computing reshaped perceptions of the promise and risks of missile defense, and the book won the 2015 Computer History Museum Prize. Her CASBIS project, soon to be released in book form, examines the emergence of cybersecurity expertise through the interplay of innovation and repair. Listeners may remember hearing Rebecca in the role of interviewer in a previous episode featuring CASBIS legend Robert Cohen. Well, this time she's on the other side of the table, taking questions from someone who expertly covered computing and cyber history for three decades, former New York Times tech journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner John Markoff. Markoff himself was a CASBIS fellow in 2017 to 18, and listeners will remember him as a frequent early host of Human Centered. John is back in the CASBIS studio, and given his knowledge and perspective, the perfect conversation partner to engage Slayton on the topics and issues, while sprinkling in a few classic anecdotes of his own from his years in the tech reporting trenches. Let's listen in. Could we begin? I wanted to ask about your path to cybersecurity. I noticed that you had this sort of broader, you have broad interests in science policy and technology policy, but you've recently focused on cybersecurity. Was there, was there an event or a series of events? What pulled you towards cyber? So there was a very long transition from my original um, academic training in physical chemistry um, into science and technology studies, and then unexpectedly, I became interested in the history of computing. Um, Should I go into all of that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, Okay, okay. So as a a physical chemist, I was working in a laser lab. We were doing ultra-fast laser spectroscopy, and when my friends would come to see the lab, they would... This was the time of Austin Powers and Dr. Evil, and they all wanted to see my laser, meaning the weapon that was going to destroy the Earth, which struck me as very funny because lasers are terrible weapons. They're extremely inefficient. They're flaky. Most of my life as a physical chemist was dealing with equipment, trying to get it to work properly. Um, And so I became interested in this idea, why is there this popular image of the laser as something that is very powerful and as a wonderful weapon? And um, as I decided that I was really interested in history of science and technology, I decided to uh, propose a postdoctoral project that would be a retraining project in science and technology studies where I would look at the Strategic Defense Initiative, um, often popularly called Star Wars, which was a proposal by President Ronald Reagan to make nuclear weapons, quote-unquote, impotent and obsolete through the use of advanced technologies. And lasers and directed energy weapons were just one part of that program, but a very sexy part. Um, You know, this was, he gave this speech right shortly after the original Star Wars um, trilogy had come out. And... um, 
So I decided to study that, and I thought, you know, well, I have this background, this technical background in laser um, technology. Um, also, I uh, was very interested in the public authority of scientists, how it is that scientists make their claims persuasive in the policy arena, um, and how arguments that are persuasive to one audience may be not persuasive to another. So I was interested in that process of um, generating authority through rhetoric and um, various kinds of arguments. So as I started getting into the project, I thought I was going to focus on the arguments of the physicists, but then I, thought, I noticed there was this really interesting set of arguments being made by computer scientists, and they had a very different structure and of reasoning than those of the physicists. So physicists would talk about laws of nature. Here is what you, here's the best you could do with your directed energy weapons. And then anything more than that is limited by the laws of physics. Look, we've got geometry, you've got horizons. This is what you can do um, to stop nuclear weapons with laser technology. The computer scientists, they didn't deal with laws of nature. They dealt with fallible technology. And the physicists would say, you know, assume all the technology works perfectly. You can't do better than this. And the computer scientists were saying, look, what we know is that technology never works perfectly the first time you field it. You have to go through um, extensive testing. And you don't really get your software debugged until you've used it realistically. And so then the question became, well, how would you use software realistically to test a nuclear missile defense system? We're not going to have trial nuclear wars. Of course, you can imagine similar issues, of course, have come up over the whole history of nuclear testing. How do you know that your nuclear missiles are going to hit their target properly? And, and and that's a very contested area and has been. And is one reason that we have way more nuclear weapons on the planet than we should, because, if, well, if we're not sure it's going to hit accurately, we'll just build more nuclear weapons. Um, but the, basically, when I was looking at the way the authority of the, the physicists and the authority of the computer scientists worked, it was very different. Physicists appealed to the laws of nature. Computer scientists talked about the limits of engineering. And so because they were... Um, talking about the limits of engineering, they could always be accused of just being bad engineers. Well, look, roll up your sleeves, be a better engineer, design the technology better, and then you'll be able to make it work. And, and so there was a, they were limited in a different way. On the other hand, their arguments had a very common sense appeal. Um, so they would say, look, it's Murphy's Law. Everybody, nobody necessarily understands the laws of physics, but they understand Murphy's Law. If something can go wrong, it will. Um, so I became interested in these very different um, kinds of arguments, different kinds of authority that were being generated. That became the focus of my first book, because I decided to go back in time and look at the whole history of missile defense from really actually even before we developed the hydrogen bomb, started with air defense. Um, and that actually there's a lot of really interesting original computing work that came out of the first air defense systems, nuclear defense systems, first real-time computing, uh, first uh, major networked computing came out of that era. Um, and the question of the book that the book sought to answer was why was it that um, the arguments of the computer scientists were so marginalized relative to those of the physicists. Let me ask you about the cultures of the, those two communities, yeah. because uh, the physicists had this rich history of dealing with the consequences of, of their inventions. Uh, there were, you know, out of World War II and nuclear weapons, there were these organizations, bullet atomic scientists, various organizations. I think this was super early when you wrote your book. Had computer professionals for social responsibility? Did they exist? Oh yes, they so, formed around the time, uh, shortly before the Star Wars Initiative. I have one side story um, to tell you. Um, I believe I'm responsible for the term Star Wars, it, with respect to SDI. So 
I was at Pacific News Service, and I wrote an early piece. This was probably 70, I don't know when it was, 78, 79. I don't know when. I can't remember the Star Wars. But anyway, um, the headline writer of, for the packet that went out used the term Star Wars. It wasn't in my article anywhere, but it was in the headline. And then it caught on. Um, Pacific News Service got picked up by, uh, it was syndicated, so hundreds of newspapers around the country picked it up, and Star Wars became part of the lexicon. I think that my article was the first one. I don't have absolute proof, but anyway, it's a little... That would have been 1983. Yeah, it could have been, it, it could have been then. Um, so anyway, that ap- apropos of, uh, of, of nothing, but uh, we were talking about these communities, um, and, and the computer scientists were behind the... But they were already active in thinking about the consequences of their technological development, and you took advantage of that. And, and it, was it that community? I mean, CPSR grew out of an organization that was just a couple of miles from here. Well, it was. I was at the first meeting. It was at it was at Stanford, and it was some people at Xerox Park who were thinking about those issues and put this national organization together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so CPSR, Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility, initially grew out of the nuclear freeze movement around 1982, which was the height of the nuclear freeze movement when you had out in the Central Park in New York thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, protesting and, and saying we need to do something about nuclear weapons. Uh, the Reagan administration was talking about winnable nuclear wars. And the computer professionals for social responsibility, they also asked Xerox Park to do something to support this. And it and they did, actually. The company did actually put some money into, I mean, they tried, of course, to be apolitical, but into public education about these issues. Now, Star Wars, um, I'll call it the Strategic Defense Initiative, since that was the official, I mean, Reagan's speech in 1983 said nothing about lasers, right? But it quickly became called that. Um, that kind of defanged the uh, nuclear freeze movement because all of a sudden Reagan said, well, yes, we understand everybody's concerned about these terrible weapons, um, but we're going to do something about that. We're going to use high technology to eliminate the threat of nuclear weapons. And wouldn't it be better to think about defenses than offenses after he, you know, initially his administration had been very offensive and aggressive in its rhetoric. So it kind of took the edge off of the nuclear freeze movement, even though it didn't address their fundamental concerns. The rhetoric of it took the edge off. Yeah. And, um, well, uh, let me ask you, so, so you came out of a pure science background. Did you face, since you were, I don't know to what extent you were actually working with lasers, but did you face some of the ethical dilemmas that some of these communities faced in terms of DOD funding as a researcher and as a... I have never accepted DOD funding. That's a great question. Um, All of my work as a physical scientist was National Science Foundation. Um, Now, there were people in my lab that were funded by the Defense Department to work on, quote-unquote, energetic materials, um, a.k.a. explosives. Um, but what we were doing was so pure science that, I, and I, I use that term with full knowledge that there's no such thing as completely pure science. It was highly abstract and theoretical. It did not have any near-term application. Um, we never, um, by the time I was doing my PhD, SDI had sort of just been absorbed into the rest of the missile defense program and was nothing really unique. So, um, Have you continued? I mean, so um, in the interim between the time your book was published and, and now, I mean, the, the physicists seem to have lost their primacy uh, in terms of what's going on in U.S. science p- 
policy. Although, you know, it's interesting. Let's bring Casbus into this. Um, Arthi Prabhakar, who is now the president's science advisor, is a physicist. Has that always been true that physicists are picked to be science advisors? Arthi was a, a, was a Casbus fellow. Yeah, it's shifted over time. So that's part of the historical story that I found so interesting, was that coming out of World War II, the physicists were sort of the preeminent science. They were giving credit or blame, depending on your perspective, for the development of atomic weapons, which were commonly um, attributed with ending the World War II. They did end the war. They didn't win the war. Um, and so they, you know, everybody wanted to have a physicist at their party. You know, it was that kind of thing to explain quantum mechanics and nuclear technology um, at that time. And that is part of why the challenges of computer technology, which were then... Um, they were they were just not central. Today, you know, big tech and information technology is we see that as a driver of innovation. All of the really big wealthy companies are, you know, an information technology of some form. That was not the world then. Um, and so, yeah, physicists were the the uh, core of the president's science advisory committee. And but that has shifted over time. The president's science advisory committee has diversified. It's had a lot more biologists particularly as biotech got geared up, and I think more information technology over time as well. Um, I also wanted to, to ask you in sort of the, the arc of your career about, so you've, be, you've become a historian, you've become a social scientist, sort of talk about how your methodology has changed. I mean, your, your, your methodology in the lab was very circumscribed. Yeah. How do you think about it now? That's a great question. So part of why I shifted was I found myself very limited in the questions I could ask by my, my PhD training. Um, my advisor was somebody who had a hammer in search of a nail, and he found a lot of good nails. Um, but I didn't want to have to be constrained in that way. Um, so the social sciences history felt a lot more flexible to me. Now, of course, as I went into it, I realized that actually there's a heck of a lot of investment, intellectual investment, in learning any kind of new discipline or method. Um, when I first went into it, I think I was very heavily oriented towards quantification, wanting to find some way to quantify things, um, but also very skeptical of quantification. And so I gravitated towards more qualitative studies as time went on and, and really looking at history and his, historical, historical narratives, because part of what drew me into science and technology studies was recognizing that the stories we tell about our past have a power and powerful impact on policy and how we make sense of the world and how we imagine our future. Um, let me sort of push a little farther on that methodology question. So you have moved to a, doing research in a world where um, there are challenges, in, I would think, or I want to ask you about this, uh, doing policy research in a world that is sort of tightly bound by corporate, military, intelligence agency secrecy. Um, how have you found that world to, are there, are there strings to pull on? I mean, is it, is it the principal challenge is that a lot of it happens in the dark? You know, more of it is public than people realize. Part of, part of how I get around that is that I'm very interested in public perceptions to start with and public policymaking. Um, because I'm a historian and because a lot of times I'm dealing with government policy, a lot of uh, documents have been declassified or released or leaked mm -hmm. from the past. Um, I think it would, it's actually much harder to study, and, and this has been a challenge for me as I've moved more into cybersecurity, history of corporations because there aren't good records and there are no laws that require corporations to let you see how decisions were made behind the scenes. Um, it's actually been easier to you know, study 
the history of Defense Department work or National Security Agency work, despite all of the secrecy, because there's been a lot of Freedom of Information Act releases, um, and you can always pursue that. Yeah, so documents are a big part of the... the yeah. 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 Um, in 2016, I, I think that sort of what the first thing I, I, I mean, you would done other earlier things, but there was a piece you wrote about the offensive defensive balance. Um, and I was wondering what pulled you to that particular question? What struck me was that people were talking about offense defense balance um, in completely different ways. So what uh, what it meant for offense to have the advantage in cyberspace meant different things to different people. For some people, it meant economic advantage, right? That it was cheaper for the offense to um, to get, and, and that's the, been historically, um, academically, the definition of offensive advantage is that it's more expensive to defend than to attack. Um, but when I talked to computer scientists, they said, well, no, what we just mean that if the offense tries hard enough, it'll win. You know, if, if somebody really wants to hack you, they will. But that's different than saying it's cheaper. Um, and so what I try to do in that, and then some people have even a third conception, which is there's a first mover advantage. Because the offense can go first, it has advantages that the second mover, the defense, doesn't, right? So there are these different conceptions, and I felt like people were talking past each other. And so I tried to, in that paper, really make it more rigorous and, and think about sort of what, if we define very clearly what offense advantage means, um, how would you spell that out? How would you operationalize that? Um, and what I found, I kind of started it as a farce, actually, because I thought, well, how? part of what's interesting is when people talked about offense-defense balance in the nuclear weapons arena, they were talking about hardware. And with hardware, you're in a particular kind of economic arena where most of the um, costs are actually production costs, just replicating missiles or defensive missiles, um, radars, all of those things. But there's a small upfront cost of research and development. Whereas with computer technology and software, it's all research and development, which really changes how we think about the economics of offense and defense. Um, and so I thought, you know, almost as a joke, if we look at Stuxnet, which was US, Israel, a bunch of allies, um, trying to uh, basically undermine Iran's nuclear enrichment facility at Natanz. Um, can we estimate how much work went into, how much money went into launching that attack and defending against it? Um, and I, I thought just going through that exercise will illustrate how difficult it is to come up with any kind of standard cost measurement because you're talking about human labor. You're not talking about rolling missiles off the production line. Um, and I kind of did it as a joke and just a thought experiment. But what, it, what I found was that it seems likely that actually the offense spent a lot more than the defense, um, which is the opposite of what people mean when they say offense has a, an advantage, right? Um, and then the other thing we had to think about was well, what are the benefits, right? And what I found there was that if you look at the benefits, just try to estimate the benefits in terms of how, how, how a nation values that attack, Look at the costs of sanctions on Iran, for example, from the costs of sanctions due to their nuclear program. And it's an order of magnitude more than the cost of the offense. So you can say, well, yeah, the offense is actually more expensive than defense, but who cares? Because the perceived advantages of that offense were so high that it's, well, yeah, it's a great deal. You know, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, it'll cost us more than it'll cost them to clean up, but 
so what? We, our advantages are, are so valuable. So trying to break down, I, I sort of started it as a joke almost and, and as a thought experiment, but then I realized actually there's something interesting here to be gained, even though I think the numbers are very, very fuzzy, and I hope people don't take those too seriously. It gets complicated. Well, this is a general question about th that world that you're looking at. Um, you know, Stuxnet struck right at the well, maybe it's over. It's it's on the cyber weapons side of things, but there's this continuum between spying and offensive weaponry that's particularly blurred in this cyber world. And I, I don't even know if you can pick it apart, but. I'm thinking about it in the question of stabilization, destabilization. Have you explored that? Right. So one of the things people are very concerned about with cyber is that uh, it can be very difficult because what you need to do to launch a cyber attack always starts with intelligence that and the person who is the target of intelligence or the nation that is the target of intelligence can't always tell whether it's just intelligence or something more. And so that can be very destabilizing. You might get a strong reaction to the intelligence because that, you know, that actor is assuming that actually you're preparing for an attack. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what goes on there and there's where secrecy becomes an issue because it's hard to know what perceptions were behind the scenes. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that it has been super destabilizing in that sense. I think the main instability that we see is that anytime you start entering a network, you risk having unintended consequences because these systems are so um, unpredictable and complex and poorly understood that even a very careful um, operation may have unintended consequences. So there was one, um, for example, U.S.-led operation that ended up knocking out a server farm in Texas that affected a bunch of civilians um, in the United States because they were trying to, you know, disrupt something abroad. And that kind of thing happens all the time. So there's that kind of instability. So far, we haven't seen so much instability that, that we know of. Um, and there seems to be some evidence from wargaming, and this is not my field, so I say this very carefully, that because officials recognize that this is a new area that they don't understand very well, they're just more hesitant to be super reactive. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, ask, I'm asking this in the context of things like tools that are known as zero days in the, in the cyber world, um, where nation states now stockpile them. There's a black market business in selling them. Um, the companies are in this interesting position where the, you know, they're they're charged with providing security for their customers, and at the same time, they have some sort of murky relationship with the government, which may have its own priorities. I mean, it's just it's just this weird, weird world that's hard to sort out, I guess. It is, yeah. So the whole vulnerabilities market is fascinating to me, um, and you know that market itself can potentially create vulnerabilities. So my colleague um, Ryan Ellis at uh, Northeastern has written about uh, how it is that the very fact that a company is now stockpiling or you know storing vulnerabilities makes it a target for hackers who want to get those vulnerabilities. Um, so people think about vulnerabilities markets as <clears throat> potentially reducing vulnerabilities by giving um, hackers incentives to find things and responsibly disclose them rather than exploit them, but they also create new targets for exploitation. And that's a tension that's not not gone away. And yeah, 
I attended your uh, Casbah's talk and you focused on the Morris worm. Uh, my role in that was reporting that it was Robert Tappan Morris who was the instigator of, of that uh, tech that brought a very young internet to its knees for, for a day. Um, I always thought that that was a significant event because it was the first time that the American public writ large had any sense of the power of networks for good and bad. I mean, networks were really not on the, um, the policy or national uh, agenda until the Morris worm, and then it sort of redefined the way things were. You, you were looking at it in a, in a f sort of formal sense of what it did to the, sec the security community in the world. I mean, is that, was that the, the focus of your... Yeah, so the Morris worm, um, November 2nd, 1988, um, uh, was largely believed to be an accident launched by a Cornell graduate student in which he was trying to run a little experiment to show how um, open and vulnerable the internet was. And the internet was at that time mostly a research network with a bunch of academics on it. It wasn't what we think of today as the internet. There weren't a lot of people on the internet. But um, he made some, a mistake in his programming that um, caused the worm to go out of control and, and basically shut down the internet by tying up servers, making them um, too busy. And that was a moment um, of reckoning for the internet community, which was then primarily an academic community. Uh, Gene Spafford at Purdue University, a computer scientist who was involved in helping clean up, called it an attack from within. Um, because computer scientists had kind of trusted each other to just not take advantage of these vulnerabilities, and um, they realized how easily this, this could happen. So um, Robert Tappan Morris uh, was the first person then, um, he was found out, his father was at the National Security Agency, um, and he was the first person convicted under the computer uh, Security Act Computer of Fraud and Abuse Computer Act. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, thank yeah. you. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. Um, and fortunately for him, didn't serve computer uh, prison time. But um, one of the things that I find interesting about that act is that it criminalized the act of hacking, but there have never been any penalties for the suppliers of computers and software to for failing to provide better security. I noticed in your... Uh 2016 piece um, on offensive defensive balance. Early on, you cite Joseph Nye on the design of the internet. Um, the internet, I think he argued, was never designed to be secure. It was designed to share information. It wasn't designed to make information private or make information secure. And so it was always the the, the, the they were always catching up um, with, with the the problem and, and in a sense didn't foresee the problem. Yeah, well, I think they did foresee it, and I think that's a common misconception, is that it was just an accident that the Internet was not secure. It was actually, particularly after the Morris worm, there was an explicit choice made where the managers of um, Internet development at uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, the Defense Department, said, you know, there are trade-offs when we what we want to optimize with this system is innovation, um, evolution, evolvability. We want to be able to continue to evolve the system. If we want a really secure system, we got to lock it down. We've got to limit access. We've got to impose strict rules, and we don't want to do that. 
And so, yes, the system will be vulnerable. And what we're going to do instead of imposing those strict rules, despite the fact that we realize that they've created vulnerabilities that allowed this outage to happen, is we're going to continue to do research to improve security, but then we'll also start what's called computer security or computer emergency response teams. So the focus came to be on response. We expect that there will be hack, hacks and outages and problems, um, and so we'll have a network of responders, um, a decentralized network of responders to clean up um, and, to, and to help hopefully mitigate and make it less likely that these things happen. And so that really started a new institution at that moment after the Morris worm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, a, that perspective is really interesting to me. Um, there is this, is it a, I'm, I'm thinking about the question of security. Um, you can make something perfectly secure. You can put it in a box and put a lock around it. Uh, they have networks that do that. They're physically air-gapped and stuff like that. But that makes them very hard to use. And there's this continuum of ease of use. And, uh, you know, w w these things are meant for uh, laymen to use. And so you don't want them to be hard to use. And so that's the, that's a trade-off that you have to live within and when you're doing security. So is that is that sort of what you're getting at in, in, in this design question? Absolutely, absolutely. So there's always <clears throat> a tension between usability and security. And there's a whole field of research that's grown up around usable security. How can we make systems that are both secure and easy to use? I, I noticed there was, a, there was a, 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 a phrase you used that I hadn't seen before. You talked at one point that I didn't recognize, the anti-security movement. Is there an anti-security movement? I, and what were, you re what were you referring to? Yes. So the person who's written about this much more than I have um, and who really tipped me off to this is Matt Gerzen, who's at Harvard. He's a Ph.D. student in their history of science um, department. Um, but, yeah, there was an anti-security movement um, really took off around uh, the turn of the millennium uh, when and it was partly triggered by the fact that there was the security industry started really going mainstream as the Internet went online and governments and corporations um, started to invest in security. All of these hackers, a lot of the hackers sort of started leaving the community and going to work for companies. And the anti-security movement opposed the security industry, which was sort of a meme, <laughs> quote unquote, security industry. Um, not always clear what that meant, the security industry, except that it was bad. And the reason that many underground hackers saw it as bad, um, some of them complained that it was actually undermining security by um, taking advantage of work, unpaid work by hackers, um, creating fear, uncertainty, doubt, and then getting lots of money for it, um, potentially disclosing vulnerabilities that could be used for hacking. Um, but there was also, you know, some sense that just they didn't want to lose all of their um, secret knowledge that allowed them to get into systems and have fun. That's really interesting. So <laughs> this is sort of a I was involved in covering this at that point, and I, you know, I was, I was, I, I was in contact with a lot of those communities. Um, I covered the rise of that security industry. There was an RSA conference that sort of defined it, and one of the reasons I walked away from the field um, in 2011 is I would go to these conferences, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger every year, um, more commercial activity, and at the same time security in a quantifiable way became demonstrably worse every year. And there was this, this huge disconnect. And I have a very clear memory of a dinner I attended with the CTOs of a bunch of cyber companies. 
And there was this one weird moment. They were joking about um, what a wonderful industry this was because they could kind of dial up the level of business by just having an incident happen. This was hypothetically. And I was watching these guys, and I saw the eyes going like this. <laughs> Nobody said anything, but I got the sense that that was really happening. You know, I have no idea. I was never able to report on anything, but it seemed like a very strange industry. And Yeah, no, it's quite ironic. There's a way in which the industry, the more the industry fails, the more it profits, right? Because the more security breaches there are, the more people want to pay to prevent them. And this paradox actually is part of what got me into my current book project is this idea that how... How is it that you can demonstrate security? Security is this abstract thing. You can't prove that you have it. The only thing that these experts will promise is that if somebody wants to break into your system bad enough, they will. So how do we how do we trust these people? Why how do they gain any kind of credibility? And and describe your current project. Is this what you came to Casbus this year to work on? Is that is, and it's a book on the history of cyber. Is that yeah of of the cybersecurity cybersecurity expertise um, and looking at how do we deal with the fact that how do you demonstrate that you have actually secured a system and, and what drew me to it is the fact that first of all we can't ever prove it and that a lot of times oddly it seems like security experts prove how good they are by breaking things which is weird, right? I mean, if you went to a doctor, they wouldn't say, let me prove that I'm a really good doctor, I'm going to break your arm. But that is what a lot of hackers do. Look, I can break into your system, so therefore you better pay me to fix it. Um, Because if I can do it, somebody else can. Well, that goes back, I mean, you know, I got to know uh, Robert Moore Sr. well and Robert Tappenmore's just a little bit, but the relationship between father and son completely defines what you're talking about. I mean, Robert Moore Sr. spent a lot of time teaching Robert about the field of cybersecurity, and there was this culture of, of testing security, proving security by attacking security, and his, his son was tutored. I mean, that was the culture at the time that was very much alive and well, and it, it was, you know, he was perceived, they saw themselves as white hat hackers early on, I mean, white, gray, black, um, and Robert grew up in that, in that world very clearly. And there was, I was at uh, Robert Morris Sr.'s home once, and he made this weird aside that I never figured out. He picked up a disc and said something about what Robert had done, and it's like that if, if he'd just sort of known about what was here, this wouldn't have happened. And I, I, I always wondered whether the father was more involved than, than was what was publicly known. But Possibly. Well, clearly he trained his son a little too well yeah, it will, it will, <laughs> in some way. We'll have to wait for Robert Tappan Morris's memoir to, to, yes. to, to, to answer that question. Um, so uh, where are you in your book? Are, are you going to... I'm sorry, that's a terrible question, but do, do you have any sort of preliminary uh, thoughts? Have you? Have... Yeah, so I came here to work on the book and instead ended up focusing on some related questions um, that really got me, like trying to think about what do we mean by vulnerability? What is a vulnerability? Um, How do we think about that across different disciplines? Um, But I have worked on the book and thought about one of the things that um, I've done through conversations with colleagues is thinking about how to organize it um, around some sort of key moments where the political dynamics around cybersecurity um, change, shift, One of the things I find fascinating about this field and the rise of this field is that uh, 
Uh, it's not a classic story of professionalization that you would expect from the sociology of the professions. Um, you do have a complete proliferation of all of these different uh, ways of trying to generate credibility. So lots of certifications, professional certifications. But I really don't see that as a professionalization process. It's much more a process of um, learning to make a lot of money off of certifications. It's a huge business. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So um, encryption is part of this overall uh, computer security debate. And I was wondering, in terms of your offensive-defensive framework for analysis, um, all of, you know, the debate has been about backdoors. That's the policy debate. It's still going on, still not settled. But all of a sudden, uh, our mutual friend Whitfield Diffie, who pioneered public key cryptography, is now going around and speaking on the issue of quantum computers and the threat they play to, which is a classic uh, resource question. And uh, have you had a chance to look at that at all? And, and not as closely as I would like. So um, I was involved with um, editing a volume in honor of Whitfield Diffie and his co-inventor of um, public key cryptography, uh, Martin Hellman. Um, and uh, they developed a very robust system, set of systems and technologies for um, securing communications, uh, secret communications across public lines. Um, but what they've always known is that if you throw enough computing power at an encryption algorithm, you can break it. The threat with quantum computing is that if quantum computing can amplify your computing power because it can operate on smaller, uh, shorter time scales than our current processors, that it could suddenly make a whole bunch of encryption technologies that we think of as secure today no longer secure because the processors can't keep up with them. Um, and so there's always this sort of cat and mouse game with <laughs> with encryption. I realized, I mean, this is in the intelligence community, historically, long before quantum computers were on the horizon, they were always storing old encrypted messages on the on the in the hope that in the future they would. And then, in fact, they have historically then broken things later, and they've even arrested people based on that. That you know, spies have been found out in organization spaces. So. I just I think about the challenge now because there's so much encrypted information to store. They have to store a lot of stuff. I guess you can store the stuff you're interested in. Yeah, and one of the really influential things that um, Wit and Marty did was to uh, criticize the what the National Institute for Standards and Technology put forward as the data encryption standard in the 1970s by showing that within you know five to ten years, processors were probably going to be able to break that pretty easily, and they were right. Um, now, the National Security Agency had some hand in trying to make sure that the encryption was not too good. Yeah. But even within the National Security Agency, there was some debate about whether they did make it too good and it actually slowed them down. Yeah. But I'm glad we got to squeeze this in yeah. under the yeah. wire. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank yeah, I you. Know. <laughs> Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, I was looking forward to um, talking to you. Yeah, so likewise. That was Rebecca Slayton in conversation with John Markoff. As always, you can follow us online or in your podcast app of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Center's people, projects, and rich history, you can visit our website at casbs.stanford.edu. Until next time, from everyone at CASBIS and the Human Centered Team, thanks for listening. <laughs>